point of pride for many journalists that I know to consume as much media as possible, as much of the time as possible. We tend to think this makes us informed, better at our jobs. So it caused a stir last week when American journalist Amanda Ripley admitted in the Washington Post, no less, that she's been avoiding the news for years. Like an increasing number of Americans and Canadians, and it turns out, journalists. Amanda Ripley's piece is titled, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? And in it, she poses a question few have been willing to ask. And that is, if so many of us feel poisoned by our products, might there be something wrong with them? Amanda Ripley is a contributor to The Washington Post and The Atlantic. Her most recent book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda Ripley is my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Amanda, welcome back to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. I'm so excited to speak with you about this piece. I loved it for so many reasons. I certainly feel the way that you do. I think you really captured it with the phrase marinating in despair. (laughs) (laughs) As you point out, therapists are now routinely advising patients to avoid the news. Headline stress disorder, apparently a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, When did you start feeling this way about the news? You know, I think it happens slowly. It sort of creeps up on you. Uh, But for me, it was probably right around the time um, Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. And there were just so many headlines that were about terrible things that might happen, you know, Uh, speculative worry, which I think is the definition of anxiety. Uh, But so I just felt like I had to limit my intake. And I never had felt like that before. I'd always really enjoyed consuming a lot of news. I I felt like I had to for my job back when I had sort of daily beat responsibilities at Time Magazine and other places. And so it was a strange feeling and mostly just embarrassing. Like I didn't talk to anyone about it. I just started shifting. You know, I would still read a bunch of newspapers, but I would read them in the afternoon or at lunch because by then, you know, all hope is lost anyway. Like I've loved my most productive, optimistic part of the day is over. But even then, I just found myself getting really frustrated by um, the lack of hope, even when things seemed to get a little bit better temporarily in some small way. It didn't seem like it was reflected in a lot of the coverage. Um, And so slowly, 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 I came to this realization that, you know, yeah, part of it is me for sure, but part of it is also the way the conventions of journalism have not evolved for the modern world and certainly not for what we know about human psychology. Mm. And I do want to get to that because I think that's so interesting. But first, I mean, let's talk about the issue of trust in media. You cite the new Reuters Institute data, uh, which reveals, as you put it, that people think the news is repetitive, dispiriting, and of dubious credibility. And it shows that in Canada, for example, 71% of us are now avoiding the news. What What's your analysis? Why do you think decreasing numbers of people trust us? Yeah, I was actually really surprised by the Canadian numbers. I thought, 
as in so many things, I thought that you all would be doing better <laughs> than we would. But uh, yeah, it's really fascinating, right? And I'm curious to hear what your theories are about that. Um, but I should note that, yeah, these numbers have been creeping up for news avoidance all around the world. And they were up before Trump and before the pandemic. So yes, there has been a lot of bad news with the pandemic. Um, and so we would expect some level of despair and fear. I mean, that would be, it would be weird if people didn't feel that. <laughs> and so, uh, but those numbers were high for news avoidance before then. And interestingly, in all the countries that were studied, women were significantly more likely to avoid the news, although it wasn't wildly off, like it's still pretty widely uh, egalitarian avoidance happening, but women were more likely. Mm-hmm. So the reasons that my, I get a lot of mail now through Substack and the reasons that I hear most often from readers are balance mm-hmm. and truth. Mm-hmm. So to talk about truth, um, you know, there's been some big things that we in the media have gotten wrong. I'm thinking about the Iraq war and weapons mm-hmm. of mass destruction, but also things more recently like the lab leak theory, which were categorized as conspiracy theories at first. And then later it comes out, there were vested interests that had sort of convinced everyone of that. And now there's serious investigation from science, government, press. And on bias, I hear a lot of people saying lack of viewpoint diversity, mm-hmm. that we are sort of uniformly using a particular political mm-hmm. lens. Mm-hmm. And that many of us in the media are what you would call in your last book, conflict entrepreneurs, sort of beating up sentiment all the time, um, that it's upsetting to people and, and boring sometimes and and. Mm-hmm. And that it turns people off. What what do you make of those concerns? That seems like a pretty good summary. <laughs> seems like you're hearing from all. I mean, what I like is that it's not one thing, right? Because if you talk to a hundred different people, you'll get at least twenty five different complaints about the news. Some of which are contradictory, mm. right? So people on the left will say the news isn't calling a thing a thing, and it's trying to be balanced, and it's trying to be. You know, there's too much, um, you know, he said, she said, and um, false equivalents. And then on the right, people will say the exact same thing, which is hilarious, like literally false equivalents, the same. And then a whole swath of people who are not super activist will say that there's not enough of that very thing, that there's not enough balance, right? Mm. So you get a lot of interesting contradictions and complexity. And I don't think that negates any of those complaints, I think. Part of the problem is that it's we're talking about a huge thing, right? Like if we, if you and I were talking about TV shows, right, we would have to differentiate. We'd say, well, you know, on the one hand, you've got reality TV, and on the other hand, you've got you know um, fictional streaming TV series like uh, Stranger Things, and they're very different. And there's much more variance in news media, I would say, even than in TV. So. So there's there's that, right? That certain things like Fox News is a conflict entrepreneur run empire. I mean, there are good reporters at Fox News who have serious ethics and do incredibly good work, but the people who are really high profile and making a lot of money for that for that organization are conflict entrepreneurs and, you know, they're not that's not the only network, right? Um there are conflict entrepreneurs on the left. So it sort of depends on what we're talking about, but I think what's really, to me, so fascinating about this is how hard it is for journalists to question, to hear those things from their audience, 
mm-hmm. and really question some fundamental assumptions that we've made. And, and I include myself, right, in that, in that failure to question. I mean, I think I would hear people complain about the news media my whole career. I mean, I've been doing this 20 years. And you just kind of tune it out because it felt like, first of all, the complaints were a little bit naive, some of them, because they, people don't know what's actually... I mean, you know, oh, you're just trying to sell newspapers. That's a classic one, right? And it, it's like, well, you know... In fact, I don't make any more money if more newspapers get sold. It is true that people do want their story to be clicked on and read and shared and that there are rewards for that, but they're not about money, right? They're almost always about ego. Mm. And I think that's something we, we could talk more about, right? And, and that is where I think journalism falls down much more often than just the straight financial incentives. The, the people, yes, there are obviously big financial incentives and those distort the news, particularly at the editor level and, and much more so on the business side. But ego, <laughs> ego distorts all kinds of things, what the headlines are, who gets which placement, who gets how much space. And there's a huge incentive to embellish and exaggerate threat in a story in order to get better placement and more attention internally in the news organization. God, that's, it's such an interesting point. And it, it is one that doesn't get talked about that, that so much of media is also a status game, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, why do you think people get into this? Like, I think it's taken me a long time to wrestle with. And again, some people there's okay. There's what do we think? Five reasons people get into journalism. <laughs> like there's not that many. One is they want to make the world a better place, but they can't really say that because you're not supposed to be an advocate or an activist traditionally in journalism. But they do want that, and I do think that's common across most journalists. At some level, they want to have impact. They want to make the world a better place, but they stop shy of saying it, which causes its own set of problems, right? But then there's a whole bunch of people who get into journalism because. They want to feel heard and seen. Some of that is healthy and some of that is narcissistic, right? Some of that is a deep need to feel important, to feel like you're in the room where it happened, right? To feel close to power. The same reason people join political campaigns, some people, right? Um, Or run for office. So I just think talking about that is way more on target than than just talking about the, the attention economy and the business model. Mm, it's, it's so interesting. And I'm just so glad. I mean, one of the things that I love about your work is you're asking a lot of questions that don't get asked. And one of those questions is like, what is wrong with our approach? And what is wrong with our product? Like, what are we doing wrong? It just doesn't get asked. Right. And it's weird because so in the US, 42% of people say that they sometimes are always or often avoid, actively avoid contact with the news, you know, kind of like it's a virus right? Like kind of like it's, you're like, ah, and that's how I feel sometimes. I don't know if you feel this way, but when you open your phone and you're like planning on doing one thing and there's an alert, I've turned off all of my alerts, but there's still, it seeps in somehow. Like maybe it's in my inbox, some kind of like horrible thing has happened a thousand miles away. Right. And it feels like, oh my God, I got to wash my hands. Like I didn't, I don't, I'm not in a mindset to engage with this right now. That doesn't mean I never will be, but like, I'm just trying to figure out how to get to my kids, you know, flute practice. Like I can't deal with this right now. And so when you have 42% of the public reacting that way to something you have really poured your heart into, as most journalists do, 
you have to start asking fundamental questions. What are we doing here? Is it serving people? Is there another way to do it that's still true to our core values as journalists, but actually serves people based on human psychology? Mm. And you you come up in this piece, uh, you know, based on research and investigation over the last year with a framework, which, and part of what I really like about this framework is it pulls us out of the polarization and just talks about us as human beings and the structure of the news not serving human beings. So what are the three key areas you identified that our coverage is lacking right now? I don't think I even realize that you're right. It takes us out of this polars. It's like, it's too left. It's too right. It's, it's like, that's a trap a little bit, right? Like, I mean, those are important conversations, but like, it feels really confining. Mm-hmm. And whenever you feel like that, it's usually because you haven't questioned some assumptions, right? So when I talk to people who communicate risk or people who study how to tell patients bad news, if you're a physician or people who um, work in conflict zones and deal with human emotion at high levels. They told me about a bunch of things that humans need to process information, literally need like we need water, right? Not, not nice to have, but need to have. And if I distill everything they said into three things that seem to be most absent from the news coverage, but not from the news itself, not from what's actually happening, Uh, it would be hope, agency, and dignity. Those three things seem to be most often absent from our stories, but present in the lives of real people. And those are things we know now, which we didn't know 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that people need in order to get up in the morning, in order to take action, in order to feel like they matter in the world, um, in order to function and collaborate in a diverse world saturated with information, hope, agency, and dignity are essential. Mm. And who's, you notice in the piece that the Christian Science Monitor, for example, does this really well. How so? What does this look like in practice? No, it's crazy because I never read them and it sounds like a religious newspaper. It's not. Um, It does have a connection to a religious organization but they've had a a long struggle, right? With that branding problem. (laughs) But I had never really read them, to be honest. I'd heard of them. And then uh, they started sending me the print edition because they'd done something about my last book because it was about conflict. And I found myself reading it. And it was about really difficult things happening all over the world, much like you might find in the New York Times or The Economist um, or on BBC, other places, you know, famine, war, hard things. But you got this sense that this organization, this news outlet, it, it was, it's very subtle, but this news outlet wants good things for you. Like they have your back. They're not kind of gratuitously dumping fear, outrage, and sadness on you. And, and part of the way they do that is, is systematic and part of their newsroom functioning, which is interesting. Like they have for their content management system, which is like the thing you write your story into, right? Before you turn it in, you can't turn your story in as the reporter until you've entered a field that says why we wrote this. And every story has a little blurb, why we wrote this. We wrote this because blah, 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 blah. And 
it forces the reporter to speak directly to the reader as an equal and explain themselves, right? And explain why we wrote this and not something else. And why we think this is important, even though it's been covered somewhere else, right? Um, so when you have extremely low levels of trust, like we've got, this is just a basic thing you would do, right? Like if you were in the middle of uh, an ugly divorce and there was extreme distrust, but you had kids together and you wanted the best for them, you would explain to your ex why you were late to pick them up, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you would explain it. You wouldn't just assume that she trusted you, right? Or he trusted you. So it's a basic thing, but I actually really appreciate those little blurbs. And then another thing they do is they have a regular feature in the print edition and also online that's called Points of Progress, where they detail things that are happening around the world um, that are actually encouraging, but not silly. So I want to make a clear distinction here that I kind of wish I'd made in the op-ed, but I'm not talking about, there are a bunch of sites now doing like good news, positive news, and that's fine. I personally don't like that. Like I feel talked down to, it feels like they're very one-off kind of, um, you know, dog rescues baby ducks from well, you know, and, and that's, I mean, once in a while on Instagram, I will click on one of those and, and I do like enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but as a news source, I need something that's larger and has bigger impact, right? And so these are these are stories about, you know, communities that have managed to move the needle on something significant, whether it's homelessness or gun violence or, you know, climate change. And it doesn't sugarcoat the problem, but it details one point of progress. Um, so that's those are two examples of how of how they do that. But it's interesting because it's really baked into their DNA. Like they're not a normal because of their religious history, right? Like they, they're not kind of a typical, I mean, they've been doing that to some degree or another for like a hundred years. So it is unusual. Mm. One question I had is how does agency differ from activism? So you pointed out in the piece kind of post-Trump that reporters were getting more activists, a little bit more shrill, feeling the impotence sometimes. <laughs> and Matt Taibbi talks about this as well, that there was a shift of, you know, the New York Times even coming out with an op-ed saying like, it's it's not enough to be neutral anymore, that this is an extreme situation. So how does activism differ from agency? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think when I asked Shamil Idris, who runs Search for Common Ground, which works on preventing violence all around the world, and he's just seen a lot. <laughs> he's, I said, what do, you, what do people need all over the world? And he said, everywhere I go, people need hope, security, and dignity. And part of hope and dignity in particular is agency, right? So they interact. Um, and agency is a sense that something can be done, even if it's not by me, right? I think there is such a thing as vicarious agency that's really powerful that we sometimes underappreciate. So people will say to me, well, what can we, Amanda, what can, it's fine, right? Okay, there should be more hope, agency, and dignity, great. But like with climate change, there's nothing that we can do at the individual level. You know, it has to be at the nation state level or at the corporate level. Um, we're powerless at the individual level. Uh, and I think that there's some truth to that, right? But it's also true that if I don't read stories of the corporations and nation states that are doing things, I feel even more hopeless, right? 
It's also true that if every single one of us takes individual action, it does make a dent. These things are not binary. You can't separate individual action from collective action. Like they, one leads to the other, just like with voting. Like it might be unsatisfying to like, just say, oh, you should get rid of your grass and plant uh, native plants. Yes, that's not going to fix climate change. But you know what? If, if like half the country did it, is a huge impact. So I don't know. I think agency is more than just um, more than just like power at the individual level to change the world because that's asking a lot, right? I think it's a sense that the world can be changed. Mm. And just lastly, you you point out in the piece there's a basic assumption at work in the press if we're acting in good faith, and that is. To avoid catastrophe, we feel like we need to keep people laser focused on threats. You really saw this in the pandemic. You still see this. What, what is this new model of change that you're proposing, this new way of looking at it? Yeah, the person who really helped me understand this problem was David Bornstein, who uh, is a journalist who runs something called the Solutions Journalism Network, which he co-founded with Tina Rosenberg. Really interesting place to go for news, by the way, because they have like a story tracker database. You can search anything you're interested in and find a story that focuses on communities trying to solve problems, not just the problem. Um, anyway, he said to me, you know, part of the problem is that journalists have a theory of change and we don't say it out loud. Again, this is getting back to how we want the world to be better, but we don't say that. <laughs> so like, the theory of change behind most traditional journalism is if we expose all the problems in as many ways possible with rigorous reporting, things will get better. Like you, the audience, will rise up and demand change. So that theory of change has not evolved for reality. I see a lot of denial among a lot of my friends, particularly at the national level, uh, like sort of high profile, big name journalism, where they're still trying to hammer on that, that one note. If we can just show you how many times Donald Trump lies or, or how bad things are going to get with climate change, then things will get better. <sighs> and it's like a magical thinking at this point. Doing that is important. But as you keep seeing, it is not sufficient. <laughs> and in fact, at some point, it's counterproductive because people tune out because they can't take it, right? It's just not designed for human consumption. So what David Bornstein suggested is, you know, a better theory of change might be, and I would urge, you know, listeners to come up with additions to this because I don't think we have the answer, but a better theory of change would be Things will get better when everyone knows about all the problems and what can be done. What are some things that are starting to show promise? And I guess I would add on to that. Things will get better when everyone knows about all the problems and the possible solutions and trust the messenger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like if you don't trust the messenger, then... It just doesn't matter what we say. And I think that's been very hard. That was a hard pill for me to swallow. I know after Trump was elected, because I grew up just revering the New York Times. It was like, you know, the end all and be all in our family. And I really think that anyone who read the New York Times and believed and trusted it 
you really couldn't vote for Donald Trump. Like you just, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, so you had to admit that the New York Times didn't have the influence that it once had in the United States at the voter level, right? Um, and I didn't see a lot of worry about that when I talked to editors at national papers. I saw a lot of conviction that they were right and that voters were wrong. Yeah. And that the New York Times example is, is such a good one for, for the concept you're talking about dignity here, right? That to step out of the New York Times framework and, and look at the you know millions of other people out there who have different ideas and different ways of looking at and potentially different solutions that might be useful to us. And part of what you're talking about in this piece is doing some really deep listening and, and granting each person in the public, in, the, in our audience, that dignity of really listening. So I, I loved that. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think that's one encouraging thing is actually podcasts. Like I do get a lot more of my news, quote unquote, from podcasts because I feel like they're less performative. There's sometimes less ego. It's a little more intimate. You know what mm, I mean? So I, I think do. that is encouraging. Um, and I think more and more the hunger for something different is just getting to be unavoidable. Like people will start to create alternate news products that are true. <laughs> See, this is the danger is there are a lot of alternate news products out there that feel better and are not true or feel worse, but, but are somehow magnetic mm. because they're telling people things that fit into pre-existing narratives. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's exciting to see so many people wanting something different, even journalists, because that means there's huge innovation still to come. Mm, absolutely. I feel a book coming on. I hope you write a book about all of this. <laughs> yeah, that would require a lot of news consumption. I don't know. <laughs> Good point. Thank you for this, Amanda. Thanks for the article and, and thank you for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 